The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamilgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Marshall Johnson. He is the Vice President for Conservation of the National Audubon Society. And for the past decade, Mr. Johnson has worked to build rural and urban community-focused habitat and ecosystem programs. He strives to bring conservation into the 21st century by creating eco-friendly profit centers and urban habitat initiatives driven by the ecosystem services they provide to communities. Mr. Johnson's pioneering work in the Dakotas brings farmers, ranchers, retailers, and consumers together with grasslands, herds, and birds into a win-win alignment. Audubon's groundbreaking market-based conservation ranching program now enrolls more than 2 million acres across 96 ranches, and additionally, creating safe passage and respite for wildlife and humans within an urban context has been a priority of Audubon Dakota under Mr. Johnson's leadership, and the program now manages the largest urban conservation program in the northern Great Plains. I had the opportunity to hear Mr. Johnson speak on a panel that was hosted by the Rodale Institute and Kiss the Ground, which discussed climate change and the soil carbon solution and promoted Rodale's newest white paper on the role that regenerative organic agriculture can play in battling the climate crisis. So welcome, Mr. Johnson. Well, thanks for having me, Melinda. Well, I have to ask you first and foremost, you have a business degree from the University of Minnesota. How on earth did you get interested in working with the Audubon Society? I could trace it back to probably two places. I grew up in between Texas and California, and I felt most at home in the West Texas prairies. And I never considered myself growing up an environmentalist or a conservationist, and I didn't think there were careers in that that sort of thing. My plan was to study business and law, and so I moved to Minnesota to attend the University of Minnesota Crookston and studied business there, and in kind of a closed circle kind of way, I was invited out to a prairie chicken blind out in the prairies of northwestern Minnesota. And it just kind of all came back together. It all clicked for me. And I didn't think actually there would, I felt at that time I may have wasted my time studying business now that I had this reinvigorated passion for the prairies. But it all kind of worked out. And I moved to Fargo, North Dakota, started working with the National Audubon Society office out of Fargo. And the rest is history. And business has, in kind of a weird sort of way, ironic way, business has become the bedrock of the work that I've been privileged to be a part of here over the last 11 or 12 years. Well, I think the business side of things is one that we have to fold into public health and environmental health, because they're all connected, aren't they? It's one of the three legs 
of the stool for sustainability. And I think that too often we separate those factors. You know, you'll hear people say, well, it's a trade-off. You can't have public health if you're working for economics and you can't have a strong economy if you're always looking for protecting the environment. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice if we don't see how the everything is connected. And so uh, it's another reason why I love the work that you're doing. One of the things that I mentioned in your introductory bio was this mention of ecosystem services. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means. Yes, absolutely. Ecosystem services, there are many definitions for it. In a nutshell, we look at ecosystem services as those set of services that we all depend on that come from healthy, functioning ecosystems. Clean water, our rivers, streams, tributaries, they are purified and they are clean by native grasses, wetlands, floodplain forests, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of a silent service that's done on our behalf by ecosystems. Pollinators. Pollinators, I think there's a study out that says one in every three bites of food that you eat is created through the role pollinators play. So insects and pollinators, those are ecosystem services. Grasslands and wetlands sequester carbon out of the atmosphere and store carbon deep in the soils and and root systems. That's an ecosystem service. And, And obviously, wildlife habitat and biodiversity are a service of highly functioning ecosystems. And so there are a number of these services that most people don't realize are had are attainable, are are done by nature, uh, ecosystems, and by shining a light on these services and in some ways putting a value to these services, I think it helps to bring them to the forefront of our food and energy production. Absolutely. And that's where that business model comes in, in looking at the value. And I've seen some research where you're trying to put a dollar value on some of these ecosystem services. And I think it's difficult to create these models, but they are huge sums that I think, as you mentioned, you know, we largely take these for granted because they are so invisible. But you're absolutely right about that one in three bites of food. And I'm sure like you, I am very concerned about the loss of pollinators, the loss of birds. You know, you spoke on the panel about Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and how she was really chided for her concerns about how pesticides, for example, were harming birds. But your work is focused on bringing birds back to the grassland areas through conservation ranching. How is ranching connected to bird preservation? You know, it kind of boils down to a simple saying that we have, no cows, no grass, no birds. In our system, our native grasslands evolved with large ruminants, mainly bison and elk and other large ruminants on the landscape. Through post-settlement and the driving off of Native Americans and First Nations people, we've replaced bison and elk with cattle. And and cattle graze very differently than bison and elk. But through taking some of the management 
techniques that we've learned and evolved from the First Nations people, you know, rotational grazing, that can be incorporated into management models that restore a fair bit, a lot of those services that ruminants and that symbiotic relationship that ruminants have with grasslands. So ranching and, and ranchers are the partnership there is, is mission critical to preserving America's and really the Western Hemisphere's grassland ecosystem. And again, it's certainly important for us to do that for birds. Grassland birds are the quickest declining species of birds in the world. So it's obviously critical there. But our rivers, streams, and tributaries and our clean water aquifers are recharged, purified, by these same grassland ecosystems and prairies and wetland ecosystems, as well as, again, the carbon part of it. So it's really mission critical that we work with ranchers who are the stewards of America's grasslands to develop conservation strategies that perpetuate the ranching industry and the ranching community and rural communities in this country. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I just want to throw in here that The United Nations has called 2021 to 2030 the decade of ecosystem restoration. So I think that the the conservation ranching program that you are heading is absolutely critical in this restoration process. So I want to know, most of the meat that we have on our tables or that we find in the grocery store or that is available through institutional buying largely comes from this feedlot meat production system, which is horrific. How do ranchers become involved in switching over to a more conservation-minded method, and what are the incentives to do so? Yeah, absolutely. As we started building this program nearly a decade now ago, really eight years, we really started the R&D phase of the conservation ranching certification we learned pretty quickly that there was so much more in common we had with our ranching partners than we had differences. And we really built this program from the ground up with our ranching partners. And we learned, yes, of course, they run businesses. The sustainability of their family operations is critical to them. I mean, it's it's certainly front and center. But there was this other almost equally weighted incentive our longing to be better stewards of the resource, um, to be better managers, and to kind of break away from the industrial system and regain some independence that they felt had been lost. And we equally and mutually felt the growing regenerative ag food systems and food systems based on traditional ecological knowledge that we're growing and grass-fed beef and pasture-raised beef uh, actually provided an opportunity for ranchers to kind of take back some of their independence. And that was really intriguing to me early on, learning that it certainly the incentives of a possible premium in the grass-fed market bolstered by an association through with Audubon through our regenerative bird-friendly certification. That certainly was appealing. But there was this other really rich desire that the ranchers had 
for greater independence from the conventional marketplace. And, and so together we formed this partnership. Out of it was created the Conservation Ranching Initiative. I mean, it really gets at the problem through two main ways, reducing chemical usage within an operation, and we provide technical assistance and try to connect peers to peers to, to find alternative natural solutions. And then also, obviously, keeping the grass on the landscape and managing the grass in a way that is more beneficial in terms of healthy, palatable forages for cattle. But also, there's this great, happy medium that can be created for grassland birds. And so it's a grass-fed, pasture-raised beef program and bison program. We were told the most that you'd ever scale that would be maybe a quarter of a million acres. And now we've scaled it to nearly 3 million acres in 13 states. And we really believe the sky is the limit. There are 48 million birders in America. And this program, when you see the green Audubon certification seal, you know that you are directly benefiting birds, the resource, and the ranchers who are bringing those things together and managing in this symbiotic or regenerative way. So it's really been a passion project for me. Wow, this is fantastic. Let me take one break because we're halfway through. Just to remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Marshall Johnson, Vice President of Conservation for the National Audubon Society, and we are talking about the Conservation Ranching Program, which beautifully brings food and health and land and climate change all together. And this brings me to something that you said during the panel conversation, which was you go to these conservation meetings and there's very little talk about food. And you also go to food meetings and there's very little discussion about biodiversity and conservation land management. And I think that the reason why I'm so thrilled to talk to you is because as a dietitian, I want to bring these worlds together. And cross-pollinating and going outside our very narrow scopes of practice, I think is so critical for really healing this existential threat of climate. So tell me a little bit about your experiences when you have crossed over into other meetings. Are you welcomed with enthusiasm about what this could mean through the food world? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when we began thinking about this approach and building this program, I think everyone within our organization felt the challenge would be convincing ranchers to maybe do things a little bit different, to explore different innovations, and and to work with one of America's largest environmental organizations, right? That and environmentalism hasn't always been kind to ranchers specifically, not merely just farmers and ranchers. Ranchers specifically have been targeted historically by the environmental community. And so that we felt that would be the largest uh, hurdle to, to climb. And it turned out to be the easiest one. I kid you not, a lot of these meetings were cold meetings. They were just showing up to a ranch on basically just having one call or one email exchange under our belt. And we hear about some of the leaders in the community and would go talk to them. And they were the most, and again, this was eight years ago, where when 
regenerative agriculture was not really in the the like the everyday lexicon here in America, and they were they were so eager because we were coming out to work with them as opposed to building something and handing it to them or imposing it uh, through uh, regulation or, or something else. This was a voluntary program, and we were doing something that you know not everyone. <laughs> And Audubon was sure we should be doing, and that is putting the Audubon name endorsing branching when it's done this way. And that was an incredible step for us to take uh, seven or eight years ago to move in this direction. And it was that commitment. I had always said that the relationship between ranchers, landowners, and conservation was far too transactional. You buy easement here, sell easement there cost share on a fence, you know, put up a fence. It was just transactional, and we really needed to better integrate our disciplines in a way that we were both at risk. And putting the Audubon name on packages of beef and bison, we believe in our program, but that's a risk. Ranchers doing something different, managing not just for production, but for production of birds and preservation of ecosystem services and propagating of ecosystem services and wildlife, that was different. And so we met in the middle, but we met in the middle of, of the plank, right? We were kind of both walking the plank, and it, it's risky. It's risky to our reputation, but the science always led us. And we do bird monitoring and other ecological monitoring on each and every ranch, and each ranch is audited through a third-party food alliance. And the science that we were led to this by has been proven out through that monitoring and, and through that ongoing management. And, and that's the, the exhilarating part of it. Are you able to track an increase in birds? We are. So on most of our ranches, we implement something. It's called the IMBCR Integrated Bird Monitoring Protocol. Uh, and it was developed by the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies and other partners. And so we, on most of our ranches, uh, we also work with Missouri River Bird Observatory, uh, and they have a model for kind of east east of the Mississippi River and are along the Mississippi River, a little bit eastern uh, central grasslands. And we have a couple other models that are kind of at the same level. And so we monitor the birds on each and every ranch. And we feed that into what we call the Bird Friendliness Index. And that's a tool, an approach that was developed by Audubon's science team, led by uh, Nicole Michaels. Uh, And that's now been accepted for peer review. And what that allows us to do is take the data. What is great about the IMBCR protocol is it's fairly widespread. So we're able to analyze the bird friendliness of an Audubon ranch versus uh, kind of the nearby ranch landscape. And what we are clearly seeing when we look at the program as a whole is the bird friendliness is improving within the Audubon Conservation Ranching Program. And it's something that we thought would happen uh, when you reduce chemicals, you find alternatives, you change management to create more of that structural heterogeneity, that mosaic of patchwork of habitat that the full suite of grassland birds require. Uh, We felt that that's what would happen, and and that's what we're seeing, and uh, it's pretty exciting. 
Mm. I want to bring up something else you said on the panel with regard to the carbon situation. In dietetics, there's a mixed thinking in terms of should we all be eating a vegetarian diet to help save the planet? And I tend to be of the mindset of that's really not the answer. I think we need to do more mimicking of natural ecosystem services. So we had what happened in the grasslands. We had grazing. We had grazing animals that were part of the food system. So it's not necessarily to not eat meat, but it's to eat less and better quality meat. And so I wonder, you had a statistic, the World Wildlife Fund spoke about grassland loss. And, you know, as we shifted animals from grassland and grazing into these feedlots, so from 2009 to 2016, you mentioned that there were 3.2 billion metric tons of carbon that were released into the atmosphere. We can't see it, but it is leading to increased climate crisis. So if we bring animals back to the land in a grazing situation, I think we can eat meat, but we can also help save the planet. Yeah, absolutely. I, I often will remind, you know, I sometimes have to remind my colleagues within the conservation community, we can be faced with a rolling kind of tidal wave of, of extinctions within the bird community long before we see the worst ravages of climate change. Mm-hmm. If we continue to remove animals from the landscape, uh, remove ranches from the landscape and replace them with rural crop agriculture because we're losing that biodiversity uh, within the grassland ecosystem. And as you alluded to, we'd be losing the carbon that's stored, the ecosystem service of purifying our streams, rivers, and tributaries, those vital veins and arteries uh, within America. Uh, And so bringing animals back to the landscape, bringing grass back to the landscape, and tweaking and changing the way in which they're managed has far better holistic biodiversity outcomes than to remove animals and uh, plant vegetables in in their place. And that, I think the vegetarian vegan approach was very well intentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there is this way where we can have balance and promote biodiversity at the same time. I think that's that's certainly where the science is today on the matter. Mm, I couldn't agree more. You also mentioned how important it is to honor the contributions of indigenous people and African Americans who have wonderful indigenous regenerative agriculture skills not only to honor them, adopt lessons from those individuals, and strive, as you say, to balance ecological systems. Do you want to touch on that at all? Yes, I think when I, we have to be reminded agriculture and by extension, regenerative agriculture, if we're not intentional, kind of carry, can have the potential to carry forward historic uh, systemic disadvantages for black and indigenous people. That's just a reality. And I think modern, mostly white, regenerative ag folks, there's not an adequate honoring of where we learned about 
rotational grazing principles and patch burn grazing. Uh, we certainly learned and adopted that from First Nations people and traditional ecological knowledge, and we don't more we don't more appropriately honor them, include them, and and adapt not just parts of that those uh, ecological philosophies, but kind of the spirit in which those philosophies were honed, uh, observed, and evolved over the years. Uh, and, and one of those principles, I think, is is not depleting the resource. And I think even through organic and organic alone and regenerative alone uh, grazing, you, you can get to a point where we're depleting parts of the resource. And so I think uh, honoring, adopting, and including more people that look like what America looks like, if we're going to change the food system in a meaningful way, uh, that's going to be mission critical. Mm, Absolutely. And I think that you touched on, you used a word earlier that I made a note of because I think it's so critical, and that is the lexicon and the words that we use. So environmentalists are often given this title of, oh, they're a bunch of activists. Or you hear about modern farming as if honoring those contributions from generations past were somehow not moving forward. And I think we have to work together whenever we do any kind of communication to address the words that have been forced really down our throats, but really don't represent where we need to be going in the future. Oh, absolutely. Um, They're just, we're incredible, innovative cropping and cattle management that were created by black slaves in the American South and First Nations people for hundreds of years before Columbus ever ever got here or America was here. And so, and those words can be for, uh, I'd say, indigenous people in particular, uh, hurtful, um, abusive, uh, because they tend to adopt some of the principles uh, that were honed by First Nations people, uh, but using terms like modern and new and et cetera, et cetera, really breaks that link, as you alluded to, in a way that um, is is more than hurtful. And, and I think it's incumbent upon regenerative ag leaders to uh, build a bigger tent and uh, bring more people into the fold, um, or, it's, again, we... we have this potential to extend and prolong these systemic problems. Mm. Well, Mr. Johnson, unfortunately, we are out of time. You've been a fantastic guest. I think you've opened our our vision in terms of where we can go. And I think having examples of improvements moving forward, especially in the next decade, are so critical. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Marshall Johnson, Vice President for Conservation of the National Audubon Society. I will provide a link both to the excellent panel on which you sat, as well as the audubon.org backslash bird friendly, and that's one word, bird friendly. And you can also find out where you can buy 
meat that has been raised in this bird-friendly fashion. And hopefully, as you said on the panel, Mr. Johnson, that we will use our dollars to help drive a better food system, and that we will vote for a better food system. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me.